Hey, this is Art Woods. I just wanted to let you guys know that in an earlier version of this episode, we got Patty Brennan's academic affiliation wrong. Uh, it's fixed now. Let's get something out of the way right off the bat. Ducks have weird genitals, and you're going to hear a lot about them in this episode. And their penis is bizarre. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. So it looks kind of like a tentacle. Um, is white and it spirals uh, in a corkscrew shape. That's Patty Brennan, an evolutionary biologist at Mount Holyoke College. The point of this episode isn't to shock you with a bunch of bizarre facts about duck nether regions. We do have a lot of bizarre facts, though. But when I dissected my first female duck, I almost had a heart attack because they had an incredibly complicated vaginal structure. They have a series of blind pouches followed by a series of spirals. The point of the episode is to highlight what we can learn about evolution by looking at extreme genitalia, because they tell a really interesting story about what, intuitively, might seem like a paradox. On this episode, we're talking with Patty about sexual conflict. You might think that males and females should always cooperate about sex, because they need each other to produce offspring. But some pretty major conflicts can arise because the best options for maximizing fitness may differ between males and females. Even though there is a commonality of interest in successfully raising offspring, the details of those agreements are um, subject to a lot of debate and a lot of back and forth. And that uh, results in this conflict between the sexes while they figure out how we're going to resolve this. We talk with Patty about the arms race between males and females. Patty says much of that arms race plays out in the genitals. It turns out that sex, and even having kids, isn't always about love and cooperation. It's sometimes about conflict. We also want to give you a heads up that we'll talk a lot about sexual violence in wild animals during the episode. These behaviors occur naturally in some species, and we have to understand them if we're going to understand the evolutionary consequences of conflict. So if this makes you uncomfortable, then maybe consider skipping this episode. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Um, we wanted to start uh, talking about one of your, your big topics and one of your big uh, interests, and that is this idea of, of sexual conflict. And I guess I would say, you know, maybe for the naive non-biologist, um, it, it's maybe a mystery that there even would be sexual conflict, right? Because aren't, aren't the genders, aren't the sexes cooperating to produce babies and, you know, to, to produce offspring and keep the species going. So, so maybe just tell us about this idea of sexual conflict and where it comes from. No, but, uh, you know, I think that I think the people who are in long term monogamous relationships, they would understand that there's actually a lot of sexual conflict to be expected. <laughs> so I don't think that they would be like surprised, yeah. you know, <laughs> they'll be like, what? What are you talking about? It's it's my anniversary today, I should say. So that's a great example. It's my wife and I's 19th right. anniversary today. <laughs> that's right. And and so it's one of those things where, um, yes, we, you expect the, the uh, males and females to cooperate because they do have some things in common. But the reality is that evolutionarily, uh, they are different, right? And so each of the each of the sexes is going to push to their advantage so that they do a little bit better than the other, and that results in conflict over everything. You know, it's conflict over, uh, you know, what's a good mate and what's not a good mate. And you know, from the point of view of a male, he might want to convince the female that he's a good one, and the female might want to be, you know hard-pressed to be convinced. And when you do have the babies, you know, one sex may want to spend less time taking care of the babies and the other one 
may say, no, wait a minute, you know, how is this mm-hmm. going to work out? There is always um, uh, areas of disagreement essentially over pretty much every decision that has to do with reproduction when males mm-hmm. and females are involved. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what we talk about when we talk about conflict. It's essentially the idea that um, even though there is a commonality of interest in successfully raising offspring, the details of those agreements are um, subject to a lot of debate and a lot of back and forth. And that uh, results in this conflict between the sexes while they figure out how we're going to resolve this. Yeah, it sounds almost like they need lawyers, you know, just to work, work out these conflicts, <laughs> yeah. right? Now, so right. so um, if you look at, say, from one species to the next, are the things that drive those conflicts largely the same? Or is it really idiosyncratic from, from one species to another? No, I think that, you know, there is the, the big underlying um, uh, fundamental difference, I guess, between males and females is in what we call um, uh, gametic anisogamy, right? Which is the, this idea that males and females have uh, reproductive cells that are dramatically uh, different and, and they require different investment, energetic investment and physiological investment. Um, and so that idea is generally the females... Uh, they have fewer gametes that are larger and they are immotile. So they kind of big juicy eggs that are sitting around. Whereas the males are producing the sperm, which are tiny little cells. They're very abundant and they are very motile. So they're going out into the world to try to find those juicy eggs to fertilize. So from the get-go, the females, because they're more limited in, in how many of those cells they can produce in their lifetime, then they're... Um, uh, they're going to be expected to be a little bit more careful, right, in their decision-making, a little bit more choosy, whereas the males, um, uh, not so much. It, and that's not to say that they're not. Of course, you know, it doesn't mean that the males don't care. They care too. But um, uh, comparatively speaking with the female, uh, they um, uh, they try to get away with a little bit more because they're wanting to maximize their, their possibilities to, to produce offspring. Whereas the females are more like, eh, you know, I don't know if you're the right guy. I don't know if this is the right circumstance. I don't know if the conditions are ideal. So it, from that point on, you know, the males are always going to be a little bit more eager and the females are a little bit less so. And again, this is a generalization. So there's a lot of detail and in different species, you find different things. But that that uh, difference in those reproductive cells does continue to translate um, into differences of what's optimal for each sex throughout the reproductive cycle, right? So in uh, things like, you know, seeking out the mates and how many times to mate and how long to mate for. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if it, there is any parental care, then who's going to do the parental care and so on. So those details will differ quite a bit between species, depending on their ecology and their evolutionary history. But the, um, the underlying root, uh, one of the fundamental reasons is these differences between males and females. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you sort of touched on um, differences in gamete size, and you know that's one of those classic arguments that I learned in I don't know college and grad school that that the female reproduct, uh, re- reproductive investment in gametes is larger than it is for males, and that always has seemed kind of mysterious to me because even though sperm cells are small and abundant, the the total investment in materials, say in sperm and ejaculates, could be as large or larger than the female investment in eggs in, in a lot of species. So so how much does that sort of, you know, gamete to gamete comparison matter versus 
the rest of this stuff in the life cycle, like, you know, female investment in, I don't know, incubation or, or parental care of some kind. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so there have been many different um, uh, ways in which people have looked to revise this idea. So fundamentally, as a generalization, it's a pretty good generalization. It's not just because of the size and the energetic investment, but it's also the lifetime limitation, right? It's the fact that uh, you know, females are not making eggs throughout. In fact, when, um, uh, you know, stem cells for uh, your um, reproductive cells are, are dividing, they divide very quickly in females before they're ever born, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then that's it. Like, those are the cells that they'll have forever. For the males, they can make a sperm throughout. And so, obviously, if a male is starved, for example, he's not going to be making a lot of sperm because he doesn't have the energy to do it. So there'll be males who will be limited in their ability to make sperm. So there are conditions under which sperm becomes limiting. Males that produce large ejaculates or males that have... Um, uh, you know, long reproductive seasons where they're mating over and over and over, at the end of the season, they'll be sperm limited. So mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not quite so clear cut as we wish it could be, right? But biology is complicated. It's part of the fun of it. And so yeah. there's another idea out there that incorporates a little bit of what you were talking about in terms of like, uh, you know, who's taking care and females are incubating or females are nursing babies. And that's this idea of what what matters really is the time that it takes you to complete a full reproductive bout. And if it takes females a lot longer, you know, to complete one reproductive bout than it does males, then the time is really the currency that matters. Hmm. So the females are uh, out of the reproductive race for longer than males. Therefore, females become limiting. Mm -hmm. So there are different ways in which we can think about that difference between the sexes, not just the gametes. So that's a, a neat framing of the thing that a lot of biologists like to talk about, this ultimate proximate distinction. You attack it evolutionarily, you can understand things one way, and then you sort of think about mechanism. Um, you come to not an inconsistent understanding, but um, maybe a, a different landing place. And that makes me, I want to go back to the, the thing that you said about the number of stem cells that females have, the sort of fixed number of reproductive opportunities they could ever have. I mean, there's been... Uh, billions of years of evolutionary opportunity to get over that hurdle. Why haven't females just sort of, I mean, wh why would it be that they sort of put themselves in this situation of only having so many opportunities? That's, you know, that's a great question. And again, is um, uh, this has to do with the evolution of sex itself, which is probably one of the biggest um, evolutionary interesting areas of research, right? Is why do we have sex in the first place? Why is it then we, we do have um, non-facultative sex, so obligate sex, which is really not the rule in nature, right? So we have this idea that, that in biology, because we are humans and we have this more uh, dichotomous uh, view of, of uh, you know, sexes, that this is really kind of the rule and the rule is not like that. So most species on the planet don't have sex at all, right? And they don't have this male and female business. There's none of this weirdness. They, in fact, don't have even gametes that are different sizes. They produce cells that are reproductive cells of the same size. Um, and so, so there is a lot of other complexity added to this. And so, so then once you get in, stuck in this route of, of um, 
uh, you know, this, this idea that you're going to have two gametes that are going to be different sizes. Um, there have been many different models and, and uh, attempts to try to explain this from a more mathematical point of view, right? Because it's hard to sort of see the evolution of it, but we can try to understand it by trying to model it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it seems like this is just an evolutionary stable strategy, right? So once you start... Um, uh, kind of changing the conditions, then you're going to arrive at other mating systems, like some of those that are in plants, for example, where you have multiple sexes and, you know, you're crossing uh, uh, different sexes. And, and so, so I think that in, in general, um, our understanding, I think, I guess what I want to say is that we're still fairly limited in our ability to fully understand the constraints of this system. Uh, but what seems to be really true is that this is an evolutionary stable strategy that is kind of hard to move away from once you're in it. Right, right. And evolutionary stable strategy, was that was always one of my favorite concepts from graduate school evolutionary biology. Anytime I teach it to my undergraduates, that's when one of those where their heads start spinning. So we don't need to go into the details of an evolutionary stable strategy, but let's just sort of cast it as something that's really, really good for the things that do it and sort of hard to come up with any solution that ever beats it. We have to do an entire episode on game theory to make some sense exactly. of that. <laughs> yeah, that's, and let's not do that. No, let's, that's, At least that's not for with another me. day. Yeah, yeah. So, and let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so my, my sort of follow-up question to this initial stuff is... Um, you know, thinking about the consequences of, of sexual sexual conflict for the evolutionary process. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have this thing that seems to be, you know, really common, ubiquitous among species that actually have sexes. So how does that affect the evolution of their, their traits? So I think the better way to answer your question is with an example. So, you know, the, the person who came up, the scientist who came up with this idea of sexual conflict and really sort of formalized it was uh, Jeff Parker, who is a... Um, an amazing uh, behavioral ecologist and evolutionary biologist in the UK. And uh, when Jeff was doing his PhD, he was studying yellow dung flies, which are these little flies that essentially find fresh cow patties in fields. And then they, um, uh, the males hang around the cow patties because the females lay the eggs in the cow patties. And, and the babies, the larvae, when they hatch out, they feed on that dung, right? Um, and so that's that's kind of like the, the ecology of the whole thing. So what, what he noticed, so he was studying these guys, and what he noticed is that he would be looking at these cow patties, and the females would be coming in, and they would be coming in to lay their eggs, and they would be jumped by a ton of males who were super eager to mate, and they're all trying to grab the few females that are showing up at the cow patty. And oftentimes, they drown the females in liquid dung. Okay? Wonderful. So, I know. So <laughs> apart from like getting the prize for like the most horrible way to die. Um, this was this was extraordinarily puzzling, right? Because if you think about it, we're, we have this idea that the males are competing for access to females, right? And females are, are limiting to males because of the reasons we've been discussing. And yet the males in their eagerness to mate are killing females, thereby taking them out of the mating pool right. and making, making them, them even, even more, more limiting, limiting. Yeah. right? And so, so you start scratching your head and you're like, okay, that makes no sense, right? Like there's no way in which I can think, okay, well, this, this is, of course, this is logical. It is not. And what it is, is the consequence of sexual conflict 
between males and females for this mating, right? And so the males, um, essentially, they're they're um, uh, aggressive because the male who can get there first, the individual male who can get there first and grab a female and mate with her, well, his genes will propagate, right? So you you end up propagating genes that that are to the advantage of the individual male that has them, even if they're harmful, right? So even if it is bad for the species to kill the females, well, if the individual genes of that one guy who's a little bit more aggressive are getting spread, then that gene will be overrepresented in the population. And you end up stuck in this kind of completely counterintuitive and seemingly paradoxical interactions sometimes mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. males and females. Hmm, interesting. So sort of the females and the dung flies, have they evolved traits to counter this this male aggressiveness? Is there any any way they can get out of it? Um, not that I that I remember. I mean, I, I know that there is a lot of um, uh, postcopulatory stuff that's going on that's interesting in that system. But but in terms of the behavior, the problem is that sometimes evolution this is the way evolution works, right? The, the animals are stuck for a particular reason. And in this case, the females are stuck because this is a resource that they cannot do without, right? Mm-hmm. So the males, by uh, you know placing themselves along this resource that's uh, absolutely required by females, then um, they have kind of put the females in a really difficult right. position. Right. They're sort right. of monopolizing the resource and then exactly. using that to their yeah. advantage. Yeah, right. Huh. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, thankfully that that's not that's not what happens a lot of the time. So there are many situations in which then you see females who are able to evolve a response to counteract, uh, you know, the traits that the males are, are um, evolving that allow them to to win a little bit of that of that race, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what are some examples of, of that? Well, yeah, I mean, for that, we can get right into um, uh, into genitalia, which are, you know, the, the um, traits that I'm most interested in studying. And um, I'll tell you that, you know, I, I uh, started looking at ducks uh, in which there is a situation of conflict that's very clear. And when I looked at their genitalia, I almost had a heart attack because I was like, oh my gosh, this, you know, the genitalia and the behavior really uh, kind of put the whole story together. But um, what it is, is that in waterfowl, so waterfowl are are super cool because they are one of the few species that form, um, uh, you know, uh, very definitive pair bonds. Uh, The females choose their their mates uh, during the winter um, in most species, not all. But they, uh, you know, get together in these uh, uh, wintering grounds and, and generally in water where the males will be in full breeding plumage and the males will dance for the females. And do all sorts of amazing displays that actually um, were studied by uh, Conrad Lawrence back in the 40s and, and made formed the, the basis for macho behavioral ecology the way we understand it today was looking at these behaviors in these ducks. And the males um, just dance and, and display for the females. And there's usually an excess of males in these pools. And the reason has to do with the fact that females uh, do all the incubation on their own. So oftentimes females get killed at the nest. 
And also because they do all the incubation on their own, they're in poorer uh, body, body condition for migration. And most mm. dogs are very long distance migrants. So that means the females, adult female dogs tend to die at a higher rate than males. So there's always more males. So that's good news for the females because it means the females have plenty of uh, ability to choose. If you will, it's like walking into a bar, you know, and then <laughs> you're like one one girl of, you know, 10 men. And so you have your pick, right? That's exactly the way that these wintering grounds work for the females. And so then the males just start doing their thing, right? They start displaying. They start, you know, laughing a little bit louder and <laughs> drinking more a little whiskey. more beer, yeah. you know, more whiskey, that kind of thing. Um, and and so the females are watching and then eventually um, they'll settle on a guy that they really like. And they begin this back and forth, right? And so she displays and he displays and she's doing this behavior called inciting, which I love. <laughs> Some of these names are awesome. Um, so she's inciting and then she'll get other guys to come over and be like, hey, look, this guy's courting me. Aren't you going to do something about it? And then everybody's <laughs> like, no, yeah, I'm going to court you first. And it's like a whole, you know, um, crazy interaction that's going on in there. But eventually the female settles on the guy that she really likes. Now and, we would and, imagine. And do you guys do you, do you know what traits they're they're paying attention to in the males that, that yes, make them choose? Yeah. Yes, that are there are two things that that people have studied uh, about this. One is the ener the energy of the display. So males that are a little more energetic, uh -huh. you know, those are the males that tend to be preferred. So they they display. Um, uh, you know, with a little more enthusiasm, if you will. Uh, maybe they learn to break dance, <laughs> whatever it takes. Um, so more energy in the display, but then uh, also some of the plumage characteristics. So uh -huh. males, they have, um, uh, you know, really good plumage. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the quality of their plumage is better. They have brighter um, feathers, more contrast in their feather patches, uh, things of that sort. Uh, dogs have all sorts of different coloration types. They have uh, pigment coloration. They also have uh, structural coloration in their feathers. And so there is a lot of stuff going on that, that females can use for information. So um, those are things that females like. And so the females are like, okay, great. I just picked my guy. We're good. And they're going to hang out together through the winter and then they'll migrate together to the breeding grounds. So they get to the breeding grounds and all is well, you know, paradise, they're hanging out, they're eating, they're getting ready to lay their eggs. And that's when things turn really dark. Because what happens in, in ducks is that in, a, in, a, in many species, and again, not all, but in many species, well, we had a bunch of males that were not chosen, right? Because we just talked about how there are more males than females. So a bunch of males don't get chosen. What are they to do? Well, in some species, they do nothing. They just, you know, hang out and, and they wait for better luck next year. But in some species, those males will go to the breeding grounds and then essentially start flying around looking for females who are in breeding condition who are paired to another guy, right? Remember, they already paired up. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for those females and then they're like, okay, here she is. And they literally fall down to the, uh, from the sky and then they force her to copulate. Mm. And this is pretty nasty business. Oftentimes there are groups of females. So they form like coalitions almost of, you know, five or 10 males who will chase and subdue a female 
um, and essentially copulate with her one after the other, hmm. despite the fact that she's strongly resisting, she's trying to get away from them. Um, this is something that's very clearly not something that the female wants. Mm -hmm. are, are those males, the males that form the groups, are they related to one another? Are they like, um, you know, is there some kind of like kin selection or, you know, br brothers that are banding together? Or no, 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 it's not like no. That. we don't know, but yeah. we have, no, we have no evidence that uh -huh. that's, that's the case. Right. Um, we know that um, most of them are males who are unpaired, but then the males who are paired when their females are laying on eggs, so when their own females, their own mates start incubating, these males will join sometimes those coalitions, hmm. right? So it's not, it's not a, a separate strategy mm -hmm. that, you know, some males are always uh, doing one thing and other males are always doing another. This is like hmm. a facultative behavior. You mm -hmm. know, if given the chance, I will go around and pursue females that I'm not mated to. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so yeah, so that's a you know you can you can see how that's a, a pretty perfect situation of conflict, right? From a point of view of those bachelor males, they're like, well, you know, if I don't do anything, I'm going to get zero reproductive success, and so I'm going to try to go pursue copulations with these females. From the point of view of the females, well, this is terrible news because they just spend a lot of time and effort picking a, a male that, in their view, was the the, the best guy they could get. Um, and essentially, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, just because they think he's, he's pretty or because he is more vigorous or, or you know, whatever it is mm -hmm. that's going on in her mind, hmm. she's picked this guy. And now there are these guys who are coming over and they're um, uh, sort of uh, totally acting against her choice. So from that point of view, the female... Um, is in direct conflict with those uh, bachelor males. So, Patty, can you say something about how successful this strategy is for these males that are taking this aggressive approach? I mean, is this, when you look at the offspring, are they all that related? Or No, so, so it turns out that um, we do have some data for a, a couple of species. And um, in both species, the mallard, for example, um, up to 35% of the copulations that are observed in the wild are forced. Okay, so that's a very high percentage of the copulations. Now, there could be reasons why that number seems so high. One could be because those copulations, the females very vocal, they tend to be messy, everybody's flapping about, squawking. So maybe they're a little bit more noticeable than the within part copulations. But, but despite, you know, regardless, it's true that, you know, in species that have very high frequency of these forced copulations, when you look at the paternity, only uh, three to five percent of the offspring are actually sired by those forced copulating males. In other words, most of the paternity still ends up going to the female's own mate. Hmm. And then in uh, the situation is essentially uh, the exact same in the gadwall, which is the other species for which we have um, paternity data. So lots of forced copulations observed in the wild very small percentage of babies are actually the result of those. So the, so the females are exerting control at some other level to, to prevent the fertilization. Is that? That's exactly right. Yep, yeah. that's exactly right. And so, so, so then what's going on, right? So one is that you, you start feeling really bad for female ducks because you're like, oh my gosh, it sucks. And the females are hiding, they're flying away, um, and yet they can't escape these males. Okay, mm -hmm. so there is a point where the females are exhausted, the males catch them, and that's that. So behaviorally, there is not a lot that the females can do. They, you know, they hide. Um, 
and they try to fly away, but that's it. Now, their own mates, mm -hmm. now remember her own mate is there. So oh, sometimes if there is only one or two males, intruder males, her mate will chase them away and fight them off. But if there are a whole bunch of males, he mm -hmm. just kind of waits it out because mm -hmm. there's not much that, that he can do. Except there is one thing that he does. As soon as all the males ha have finished their forced copulations, the female's mate would rush over to her and copulate hmm. with her immediately. Now, we think that that has something to do with um, a feature of birds that's uh, related to how they use sperm. So birds, um, the last sperm in is the first sperm out for fertilization because females store sperm, right? And so essentially um, the idea is that, you know, she could mate with 10 males, but if the last sperm that goes in there is her own mate. I see then when she's going to fertilize the eggs, her mate sperm will come mm -hmm. out first. So that's, that's one possibility. But the other thing that, that uh, we found that is really the most fascinating aspect of this, I think, is that um, this, this war between the male and the female is really playing out in their genitals. Uh, and there are no, there are not many occasions where I can use that phrase, but I love it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anybody say those words together. <laughs> there, there were plays out in their genitals. Um, so, so what happens is um, we know that male ducks have uh, uh, penises, whereas the vast majority of birds do not. Okay. So uh, evolutionarily, sometime, um, uh, you know, 70 million years ago or something around then, um, uh, during the evolution of birds, the penis was lost. And we can talk about that later. And I can tell you, I have lots of ideas about why that happened. But <laughs> the bottom line is that, yeah, the bottom line is that every bird that you see out there, you know, uh, most birds out of your window, all your chickadees and your cardinals and all those guys, they don't have a penis. But ducks do. And... Their penis is bizarre. It's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. So it looks kind of like a tentacle. Um, it's white and it spirals uh, in a corkscrew shape. And the sperm channel is on the outside of the penis right on the, rather than on the inside. And the whole thing is powered by lymph rather than blood, mm. which is even weirder, right? Wow. So these are bizarre penises. And then in some species, they can be incredibly exaggerated they can be as long or longer than the male himself. Hmm. In other species, they're very small. So say, for example, a Canada goose. Canada mm -hmm. geese are pretty big um, uh, animals, and yet their penises are fairly small, right? Something like a ruddy duck, like an American ruddy duck, they're tiny little ducks, and they have enormous penises. So there is a lot of variation in this penis size in, um, in ducks. And we knew that, and, and we have known that for, for a while. But what I did is I, I was curious about, okay, so if you have these penises, these penises are extremely weird. What's going on with the female vagina, right? Because you can't have weird penises without some place to put them on. So I was <laughs> like, okay, there's got to be something going on in the vagina. Now, I was necessarily expecting that I was going to find something that was going to give me a clue to conflict. I was mostly expecting that I would find kind of like a big pouch or, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of weird structure that was different from the vaginas of other birds. Um, but when I dissected my first female dog, I almost had a heart attack because they had an incredibly complicated vaginal structure. 
So what they have is um, they have a series of blind pouches followed by a series of spirals. Now, I told you that the male penis is spiral, but it spirals on a counterclockwise direction, whereas the female spirals are on a clockwise direction. So that's literally like the <laughs> anti-screw device, right? right? It's not the lock and right. key, but it's like the anti-lock and key. Um, it looks as if these things were never meant to fit together in, in a way. Um, and so these, these dissections that I was doing originally were with uh, picking ducks, which are the farm ducks that you find, you know, everywhere, the ones that people will eat and, and all that. So in order for us to know, well, is this really related to this penis size and to these forest populations? We went out and we collected a bunch of uh, male and female ducks from a bunch of different species, some of which have high levels of forest populations and long penises, and others that have low levels of forest populations and short penises. And what we found was that the complexity of the female genitalia co-evolves very, very closely with the length of the penis of the male and then the level of force copulations that they'll do. Hmm. So the more force copulations a species will have, the more convoluted the female vagina and vice versa. So species that are very monogamous where there's no force copulation going on, the males have little penises and the females have vaginas that are just a simple tube. So that was amazing because it means that, you know, these structures are really co-evolving tightly, right? So, so then... We're like, okay, great. It looks like the females are evolving something here that is posing a barrier to the male penis, which is crazy if you think about that, because, you know, talk about cooperation. Like, if anything, you want to help the penis mm -hmm. so that the sperm can get in there. And that's generally true, except if you have conditions under which sperm are getting in there that right. you don't want in there in the first place, mm -hmm. right? Then you might be predicted to actually try to do everything in your power to um, get rid of that sperm. So have you done, or has anyone done, work within species? I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is whether when the female chose her mate, is that because of some sort of, you know, lock and key fit with him? Not at the species level, but, you know, in, in Muscovies or Mallards or whatever. No, so, so the interesting thing is that uh, most ducks are choosing their mates in the winter, and... Uh, the penis is essentially totally regressed during the winter because these are seasonal structures just like testes. So like testes grow only during the spring um, when they're going to be used for sperm production. Penises are the, the same, which is actually really cool. So they're very seasonal and they grow during the spring and then they shrink. They don't fall off. Sometimes people get that confused and they're like, oh my gosh, their penis falls off. It's not like, you know, Donald Duck is looking down and then off goes oh, his that, penis. That explains it. That's why Disney did that. There was a reason. I, I always wondered. That's right. That's why, that's why he doesn't wear any pants. He's a winter duck. That's right. It's a nice um, way of saying it, yeah. So... Um, so essentially, uh, the, the penis gets reduced. So when they're pair bonding during the, during the winter, the males are in full plumage and their behavior is full on, you know, display, but their penis is really, uh, reduced. Mm -hmm. So they do these mock copulations, um, where they'll actually, the males will mount the females, but there's no intromission that takes place because he can't even avert his penis at that point. His penis is very tiny. So there's no evidence that the females can select on particular traits of the penis uh anyway not directly mm, okay 
So I just wanted to get back to these uh, corkscrew shapes. So and just just to be clear, you're basically saying that the the shape and the direction of the spiral of the female vagina is a mechanism for inhibiting the male penis from getting in, and that that's sort of a mechanism for uh, preventing copulation or preventing the sperm from getting far down the reproductive tract. Um, these are hard questions to get at, I, t I tell you. So I have, I have to get really creative as to how I'm going to answer them. But what we did is we actually decided to build models of these female vaginas, okay? And then we went to a farm where they have trained a bunch of ducks to collect sperm. So there is some artificial insemination that goes on in the poultry industry uh, where they collect the sperm from Muscovy duck males and then they inseminate picking duck females with it. And they do that to make those mullard ducks mm. that people use for foie gras. Mm. And so there, there are farms where they train Muscovy duck males to um, provide sperm, you know, very willingly. So I connected with one of these farms. And what we did is we um, decided to test, is this true? Are these shapes of the vagina potentially preventing the males from fully using their penis? So we built uh, models that we call the female-like models, right? So one is a, is a spiral that goes in a clockwise direction, like the female. And then another one that had a, a blind ending, just like the one that she has at the entrance of her vagina. And then we built two shapes um, that were the, the, the friendly ones to the male. So one was a clockwise, uh, sorry, a counterclockwise direction uh, model, so spiraling in the same direction as his penis. And then another one was just a straight tube. And we made these out of glass. And you can imagine <laughs> what that conversation was like when a, a, we what? walked into the, the guy who did all the chemistry. <laughs> yeah, all the chemistry stuff. And, and you know, he makes all kinds of crazy glass stuff for, for chemists. And, and we were like, well, this is what we need. <laughs> He's like, oh, my gosh, you people are weird. <laughs> But he did a great job. So we, we walked out of there with our glass models and then we went to the farm and we tested them. And what we found is that the female-like shapes, the vast majority of the time, they prevent the full aversion of the male penis. So what does that mean? What that means is that the bird penis, because he's such a weird penis, is kept inside out in a little pocket in the male's cloaca. Okay. So he has to avert out, like like uh, when you're putting in gloves, if you can imagine like pushing the finger out of a glove, is that kind of process. So you have to push out this, this structure. And they're pushing it out with lymph, essentially, as lymph is flowing in. So what happens is that this, this lymph is flowing in and this penis is hitting either this pouch or is hitting one of these spirals and it gets stuck and it cannot move any further. But the cool thing is that because the sperm channel is on the outside of the penis, the sperm still come out. So he can still ejaculate. But it's just now that what happens is that the sperm ends up much farther away from the sites of fertilization and storage. So now the female has a way of manage that sperm better, right? And, and less of that sperm will make it. And, and, and so, so the reason to have the, the sperm channel on the outside is that the penis doesn't have to evert all the way in order for the male to have a successful ejaculation, R sort of regardless of how far it gets, the sperm can get in there to, to some distance? Well, right. But that that's not really the reason why they have it. Uh, that's kind of like a, a nice consequence in a way for the male. The reason really is because um, uh, it's, it's a a different level of analysis is a developmental reason and is because penises 
when they develop, they develop from two separate um, phallic bodies. They come together. And when they come together, they form the, the sperm channel or the urethra in mammals. In mammals, that urethra gets encapsulated by those two phallic bodies merging, uh -huh. but in birds it I doesn't. See. So the two phallic bodies come together, but the, that sperm channel stays on the surface. So as the penis continues to grow and it spirals, it will remain um, on the surface. So it's just kind of, uh, and, and other birds that don't have forced copulations also have external sperm channels, right? So it's not, this is not an adaptation for the forced copulations right. themselves. It's just part of how the penis is built. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Patty, can we, can we zoom out? I, I have to, like Art said, I'm fascinated to know some of your ideas about the loss of penis in birds, loss of penises <laughs> in birds, but um, can, can you frame that in the sort of why or whether ducks are special and maybe talk a little bit about the other species that you worked on because i think the answer is that ducks aren't special in a general sense you know there's mm -hmm. specific uh traits maybe so but insects right there's all sorts of amazing stories in insects and cetaceans that's right and lots of other yeah. things yeah 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 exactly so so ducks are special in one sense that's very particular and that is that we know very well what the female choice was, okay? Because the females have gone through that pair bonding and, and mate choice process. We know this is the guy she wants and these are other guys that she doesn't want, okay? So that makes it easy for us to interpret these behaviors that we see and understand it in the context of conflict. There are lots of examples, lots of examples from all, some others, from vertebrates that I have studied myself and, and then insects that many other labs have studied. And the insect examples are, are amazing and super cool. But the, the one thing that's different in those systems is that we know females need to mate with someone, right? So we, we just don't quite know, well, out of these interactions, even if they seem like conflict, she's still having to choose one of these guys. Okay. And so it gets a yeah. little bit grayer, if you will. You know, it's a little bit harder to, to get at it. Um, and so, yeah, so, so, so that is really kind of the cool thing is that um, so ducks, they have this one thing that we're like, whoa, you know, so we know what she wants and we know this is what she doesn't want. And so we can, we can interpret and understand what's going on in that context. But um, in insects, you know, we have, we have examples of, of males who have uh, penises full of spines, for example, where they'll mate with the female, they'll scratch the inside of her oviduct, you know, uh, rip it essentially to delay her remating. Right, because if the female is busy healing uh, her reproductive tract, well, she's not going to want to be in the business of finding another guy to mate with. Right, she's got to take time to heal, and then she's going to um, look for a male, another male after she's done. So it's kind of like <laughs> a, a, an evil way of of making sure that she's going to um, uh, keep that sperm and potentially use some of that sperm from from these males, even if they're causing harm to the female, right? And so again, is that is that same uh, situation as with the yellow dung flies? In that, um, you know, you would think oh, that doesn't make any sense because if the female is fighting potentially an infection or she has inflammation, well, she's not going to produce so many babies. But it's like, yeah, but if you are that guy, and if you can make sure that the the most of the babies that female is making are yours. It doesn't matter if she's making fewer babies. For as long as in the representation of right, the population, right. you're the guy doing better. Right. That's really all that matters. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. 
So that's one, you know, where, where we see that, um, uh, you know, we see examples, for example, in the bed bugs, <laughs> which are crazy, where, um, you know, the males have these, these uh, hypodermic penises that are needles that they perforate females anywhere through their bodies, right? And this is a situation where males were getting away from, from any female control that mm-hmm. she might exert through their genitalia, right? So if, if you can imagine a situation where the female is putting a barrier and saying, hey, not so fast, buddy, you know, let's, let's just, I'm going to check you out before I decide if I want to mate with you. Well, the, the male just has this needle where he can just stab the female anywhere in the body. And he puts his sperm inside her body cavity where it will swim around until it finds that's eggs. Amazing. And, you know, that's that. And so you can imagine that's like, you know, that's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of conflict going, in, going on in there. And in the, in the bed box, it's gotten to the extreme that even in some species, females, uh, so females have done a couple of things. One is they have made their exoskeleton thicker. Right right to make that right. puncturing by the male harder but then they've they've now in some species they have evolved these secondary openings so what they do is they have these guides on their exoskeleton where when the the stabby penis comes in it's guided through a part of the exoskeleton where the cuticle is thinner where he can easily go in but then inside of her body, she's already mounted an immune response so wow. that she's not going to be so affected oh, by amazing. the breaking wow, through, right? So, mm-hmm. so females co-evolve a defense, uh, mm-hmm. you know, against this, this puncturing. Yeah. Um, so it's amazing. And so, but, but here's the most amazing thing, I think, is that a lot of these examples are with genitalia. So why should it be so, right? Why genitalia? And I think that the reason is pretty straightforward is because genitalia are the most direct mechanical interaction between males and females. There's no other place, really, where like a male and a female have to physically fit in to make reproduction possible it's when you have a species. Intimate interaction sort of repeatedly, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. And so so I think that, that that makes it a prime place for this um, uh, conflict to, to have very clear... Uh, anatomical consequences, right? So I, I wanted to circle back to uh, this macroevolutionary stuff that Marty was referring to. And um, so, so you've thought a lot about macroevolutionary patterns of, of the evolution of genitalia. And you've, you've written some interesting things about um, gains and losses of penises among vertebrates and among, and among birds. And I just wanted to ask you about those those macroevolutionary patterns. So, um, how many times have penises evolved in, say, vertebrates, and how many times have they been lost altogether? And and what leads to the losses too? Like, why why do most birds not have penises? Yeah. So that's um, it's a. Fa- I think that's really fascinating. So, if you look across vertebrates. Um, when we look at the, uh, you know, the fish and the amphibians, so what we call the anapneots, right? Fish, in many species of fish, um, uh, different families, different groups have evolved intromittent organs. We don't call them penises because they're not exactly um, a penis like the apneot, but they are intromittent organs. So they're organs that the males are using to go inside of the female and deposit their sperm uh, for internal fertilization. And these have evolved in um, uh, my favorite uh, uh, 
example are um, the cartilaginous fish, right? So sharks and rays. Uh, I'm doing a project right now actually looking at those. Uh, they're called claspers. And those claspers uh, oftentimes have huge spines um, that uh, the males are using essentially to affix themselves to the female during mating. And just like in that insect that I was talking about, the seed beetles, you know, those spines are going in and, and, and probably making some damage. But anyway, we know that, that cartilaginous fish... Um, uh, have these intromittent organs. We know that a lot of um, uh, Tilios fish have intromittent organs that have evolved from their anal fin, right? Whereas the claspers in the sharks evolve from the uh, pelvic fins, so they're modified uh, pelvic fin rays. Um, we have examples, for example, in, in chimeras where they have weird double-headed claspers and they have like a phallic body on their forehead that we don't <laughs> even know what it does. And, you know, there's a lot of crazy right. uh, stuff going on in there. And, and you're, saying, you're saying that all of these of things fish, are, are independent evolutions of a, of a pe- penis-like structure, even if it's not called a penis. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. Correct. Exactly. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Independent evolution. So some from the anal fins, some from the pelvic fins. We know that even placoderms, which are extinct, uh, uh, you know, fish, uh, th- there was a paper recently where they described having found evidence of claspers in placoderms. So we know that that would have been even yet another independent origin of, of those intermittent organs. So anyway, but then you, we get to our frogs uh, and our salamanders, and they've got nothing. Right? So amphibians... They have no penis, no intromittent organ. They have external fertilization, right? So they don't need it. But salamanders, they have internal fertilization and they still don't have a penis. What they do instead is they they make a spermatophore. So male salamanders will walk around, they'll uh, court females, and then they'll deposit a spermatophore on the on the sometimes on the ground or in the water, and then the female walks over it and then she picks it up, right? So um, no intermittent organ there. But then now we get to the amniotes, right? So now we're looking at, uh, you know, crocodiles and turtles and uh, mammals and birds. So what's happening in there is we have a huge diversity of penile morphology. For example, I already described what's going on in birds. But if you look at crocodiles, crocodiles have a really solid collagenous penis with an enormous inflatable glands that's powered by uh, blood rather than lymph, right? And crocodiles are, uh, you know, closely related to birds. And so there was a lot of evolutionary change that went on in there. Um, If you look at a turtle, for example, turtles have um, uh, a real uh, inflatable penis that can be enormous, right? And um, is is very little studied. is also uh, powered by blood. We have snakes, so squamates, that have two penises instead of one, right? So they have what are called hemipenes. And they use one or the other. It's not that they use two in a single mating. They will use one or the other. Uh, but they have two. And so where did these two come from, right? And so because of all these differences, and then, of course, our regular mammal penises with um, uh, a couple of different variations, some with penis bones, some without penis bones, um, but all uh, inflated with uh, with blood to a different degree. Uh, but when you look at this variation, uh, you can understand why for a long time we thought that these were independent evolutionary events, that, you know, snakes had evolved 
a different phenotype, that birds had evolved a different phenotype and the mammals had evolved a different phenotype and that they were, these were totally independent origins. But very recently, just a few years ago, uh, out of um, the lab of Marty Cohn in, in Gainesville, he's an evolutionary um, uh, developmental biologist. And he actually went back and he looked at what happens in the development of the penises in all these different uh, amniote groups. And lo and behold, he finds deep homology in the evolution of these structures. What does that mean? It means that when you look at the very first steps of the evolution of the penis, these two little phallic bodies that come out of the cloaca, is the same for everybody. Okay, so everybody is starting with the same cellular signaling from the same location. So, so, so same developmental process. Same developmental process at the earliest stages of development. And then at some point, lots of other stuff start happening in these different groups. But there is deep homology of this organ, meaning that this was um, a single evolutionary origin of the mm -hmm. penis in mm -hmm. amniotes. Neat. With incredible selection for huge amount of variation. Yeah. And, and let me just ask really quick about the, the, the sort of com the obvious compliment. So we just spent you know, six or eight minutes talking about this massive diversity of, of penis types and macroevolution of, of penis across vertebrate groups. Is there equally elaborate and complicated evolution of vaginas in, in you know, the same groups and in lineages? I mean, there must be massive coevolution, right? Right, right, exactly. So um, my first answer to your question is we don't know. This is a big part of what my research is all about right now. So... Um, uh, I joke that I'm going to get started the Vagina Research Institute, but <laughs> it's really not a joke. I think at this point it's actually true because what we're doing is we're looking at the vaginas of many different groups. And so we've been looking, for example, most recently at the vaginas of dolphins and finding the dolphin vaginas are crazy elaborate. Um, uh, and the story is very similar to that of the ducks, right? It's, it's a, a female elaboration resulting from sexual conflict. Uh, we're also looking at vaginas in sharks, again, because uh, we predict that because males have these claspers, uh, where sometimes they have these giant spurs, that we're going to find some co-adaptation, some co-evolution going on on females to uh, put up with that kind of, of damage. Um, so we are, we're trying to fill in those gaps, but um, it's definitely not something that people have been looking at uh, very actively. Now, vaginas are not um, necessarily in many groups kind of quite as shocking as, as penises, and that's part of the reason why uh, I guess they haven't really been as studied. Uh, they're, they're very diverse, but they're more subtle in their diversity. So you need a, a better quantitative methods to actually look at what those differences might be. So in my lab, we use a lot of uh, three-dimensional modeling and uh, geometric morphometrics to actually get at those differences, right? Um, because it can be, it can be hard. But the other thing about vaginas is that vaginas generally evolve from the same structure. And that structure is the tube that carries eggs or babies from the inside of the body to the outside of the body. Okay, so all vaginas have that commonality. They all come from that one tube. When you look at penises, though, and intromittent organs in general, they evolve from all sorts of different body parts. Right. And so they evolve from a tentacle. They evolve from an anal fin. They evolve from a pelvic fin. They evolve from the cloacal tissue. They can evolve from 
um, uh, you know, pedipops in the mouth of insects. So the diversity of structures that can give rise to intromittent organs in males is much greater. And so you end up with a lot more diversity in those organs than you might in the, in the female vagina. Super interesting. Um, but, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the vaginas are, are hmm. not disappointing. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> we, we have found lots of really uh, fascinating uh, variation. You need your research institute. So. Yeah, so, so let me just address the one thing about the loss of the penis in birds because you guys asked me about that a couple times yeah, and yeah, I keep, I keep sort of circling <laughs> over it. So, um, so yeah, how do you lose a penis, right? And that's a, that's a really cool, interesting evolutionary question because when you have internal fertilization, the job of the penis is quite simply to put sperm close to female eggs, right? And if you get rid of the penis, then wow, like all of a sudden you just lost a, what seems to be like really an important tool for those species. So what happened? And there are many different hypotheses that have been suggested for why birds lost the penis. Um, people have suggested that it has to do with um, uh, penises being too heavy. And therefore, since birds took to the air, you know, that maybe they were trying to lighten up their bodies and they got rid of the penis. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so, because ducks are some of the longest distance migrants and they have huge penises. And if you're going to lighten up your body, like your penis might not necessarily be the first place that you would think about, you know, <laughs> ditching the cargo. It just, it just doesn't yeah, seem like yeah. that would be the place. That's an important um, suitcase to take along. Exactly. So th th there are other things like, um, you know, the maybe... Um, is uh, copulating in the water. So if you're a duck, you're copulating in the water. If you have a penis, you can protect your sperm from water damage, which seems to make sense. Um, except that there are lots of species without penises that made in the water and lots of species with penises that made on land. So again, you know, eh, not a lot of support. So I tell you the two hypotheses that I am most excited about and that I think are most likely to be true. Um, are one is uh, related to this idea of female choice. That if a penis allows males to somehow bypass female choice and somehow get away with this uh, winning this sexual conflict in some way, that females might start selecting for less violent males or males that are less able to control the reproductive outcome. And that maybe over time that results in an advantage of actually not having a penis, if that's what females are preferring. So it's, but that's impossible. So what's the problem? It's impossible to test these hypotheses because we have so few instances of penis loss, right? So essentially the penises were lost in the root of the neoavis, right? So anything after Galanceride, no penis. And then the penis has been lost or reduced a few times within those other births um, that, that mostly have a penis, like the paleognates that include the ostriches and rias and all of those guys. There have been some losses of the penis in there and reductions, but it's not enough to formally do an evolutionary test. But the other hypothesis that I think is, is possibly really cool is the idea that is reducing sexually transmitted diseases. And the idea there is that birds have a couple of different things from everyone else. And one is that, of course, they have a cloaca, right? So the cloaca is the single hole where both the digestive and reproductive products come together, which seems like a terrible design idea, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so there <laughs> Evolutionary is a, fail, huh? I know, exactly. Not Non-intelligent design. <laughs> Um, (laughs) So this is a place where where things are coming together that maybe shouldn't really come together. And so there's potentially a lot of uh, infections and nasty stuff that can get in there. Um, And then um, the other thing is that birds also have higher body temperatures, right? So, um, uh, you know, birds run a a high thermostat. and, And so that would make that cloaca even more prime, you know, for potential infection and potential viruses to take hold and become problematic. But we know something about sexually transmitted diseases in birds. We know that they do have them, right? Um, we don't really know anything, comparatively speaking, about do birds with penises tend to have more than birds without penises, et cetera. And that's something that I'm uh, starting a collaboration on with uh, a colleague uh, right now, trying to get see if, if that's actually something that might, um, might help us understand um, Pinot's laws. Uh, but that's it. So, so the answer is we actually don't really know why birds lost their penis, but we know that the consequence of it is that when you look around at birds, birds, unlike any other vertebrate, um, are the place where males have gone nuts with the exaggerated traits and the courtship and the, um, you know, male birds in many, many different groups, they are the ones who are have the most beautiful plumage and they're the ones that sing and they build bowers and they, uh, you know, they dance and they just go to great lengths to convince females to use their sperm. So this is all a kind of evolutionary compensation for not having the intermittent organ. Uh, so if they can't, because if they can't, force their sperm out there and, and, you know, put their sperm far inside of the female. They're, they're doing this cloacal kiss where the sperm ends up right at the entrance of the female cloaca. So in order for that sperm to make it, the female really has to so, kind of suck it up a little bit, right? She's got to really right. bring it in. So there's sort of and we know that more birds, degrees of freedom for female choice in, in those birds. Yeah, that's right. A, a lot more. And, and like you'll see something like chickens, right? And in chickens... Females will often mate with males that they don't prefer just to get them off their backs, literally, like subordinate males. They're like, fine, I'll copulate with you. And they copulate with them and they turn around and just drop the sperm on the ground, like just like nothing. Right? So if the females don't want that sperm, they can get rid of it because it's just at the entrance of their cloaca. So the males means the males have to go out of their way to be nice and to do things the female's way, essentially, to, to make things happen. So uh, can we can we spend a little bit of time on on humans or you know mm-hmm. non-human primates instead sure. or both or I mean in, in particular I think we could especially you know we could talk to a psychologist and do a lot with behavioral components of sexual conflict but can you say anything are there data on morphological and physiological examples of sexual conflict in humans? Um, that's an excellent question. So one of the things that that I've typically use as an example of sexual conflict and how it it um, starts in a way uh, is an example that I typically will, will use with gorillas. So if you think about gorillas, gorillas have, um, uh, you know, a harem uh, defense. So the male, the silverback male, he has a harem, his group of females, and then he has exclusive mating access to those females. But that means that there are a bunch of gorilla males that don't get any females, right? And so the male is going to always have to be fighting to protect his harem. Uh, 
And when you look at the consequence of that, you'll see that sexual dimorphism in gorillas is crazy, right? So gorilla males are enormous compared to females. And they have enormous canine teeth, right? Because they're fighting other males and they're huge and powerful. And so the, the, the sexual dimorphism has evolved as a way for males to fight their competitors. But then if you think about it for a second, well, now you have these males who are enormous. And so if a female from their group wants to leave, he's not going to let her leave. And he's now completely physically dominant over that female as well, right? Because he can overpower her. He's so big, so massive. So something that evolves for the purpose of males outcompeting one another may then allow the males to use that same trait to dominate the female. And so you might have that situation of conflict where, you know, even if a female didn't want to stay in a harem, she doesn't have a choice because she will not be allowed to leave. She'll get beaten up by the male. So in humans, for example, we know we have a lot of sexual dimorphism and, and we know there is a lot of, of violence and we know there is a lot of physical violence of males against females. And that physical violence is facilitated by that very same sexual dimorphism, right? So that sexual dimorphism is indicative of, um, uh, of sexual selection, right? It's saying, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a little bit more intense sexual selection on males. But because male, human males on average are larger than human females, it means that those very males can also overpower females. And, you know, we know all the instances, for example, of domestic violence all over the world where males, you know, will beat up their partners. And they beat up the par their partners for evolutionarily predictable reasons, that the partner may leave them, that the partner may have high sexual value, that their partner might be, uh, uh, you know, a, a desir potentially desirable mate. And so those are the circumstances where, where human males might beat up their, their, uh, their partners. So it's always, you know, it's always hard to, to talk about humans in this, in this biological way, because of course, you know, for somebody who has been subjected to, uh, uh you know, um, uh, this kind of sexual violence, it's, it's, it's horrible, right? But, but I think it doesn't, it doesn't take anything away from the fact that this is horrible. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't say, oh, it's fine because gorillas do it, right? Um, what it means, though, is that we can understand what our proclivities might be, and then we can work to fight those, right, and, and change them uh, with our cultural uh, abilities. So um, so that's, for example, one, one way in which, um, uh, in which I think sexual conflict is clearly uh, manifested in, in humans. But humans are different in many ways too, right? Because we we also are weird because we have biparental care. So that mitigates conflict a lot compared to what you might see in chimpanzees or, or gorillas, right? Where the females are alone taking care of their offspring. In humans, they really have to cooperate because we have these babies that require a lot of care that really thrive with biparental care. Um, and so that has also mitigated a lot of that, right? And so we... Uh, you know, the, the canines, for example, that are so dramatic in many primates are no longer like that in, in humans, right? Uh, otherwise, your smiles would be, <laughs> you know, quite a lot different than, than they are a little bit more scary. Yeah, scary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just feeling my canines here. But, They're pretty um, small. 
<laughs> you know, those things are evidence of that, you know, that there is also selection on males to, to be nicer, honestly. I mean, if you were to compare a human male to a human chimpanzee, human chimp- um, um, to, the, to a male chimpanzee, male chimpanzees are pretty horrible, right, in many, in many ways. And so um, that selection for, uh, you know, reduced violence and, and more cooperation has also been a part of our evolutionary history. So. So what do you, uh, in 2014, um, you know, the NIH sort of put together, I don't remember the details of the mandate and I might get it wrong, but they did, the director at the time said, you know, we need to start studying the female side of these sorts of things. And there was a specific, I guess it was a mandate that any sort of study with clinical relevance to people would have to involve both males and females. Do you think that is the type of thing that opens the door to your Vagina Research Institute? <laughs> or, I mean, is that, is that a big enough step or what else are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's the thing that surprises me the most. That was 2014, you know, like, why is it that we haven't been doing these things all along? You know, that's the thing that you're like, wow. I mean, I'll give you another example. The The full description of the of the structure of the human clitoris was published in 2009. Jeez. Wow. Right? So less than a decade ago. What's up with that? You know, like like when you think about it, the, the, the question to ask is not, wow, isn't it, isn't it great that it's happening? Well, I suppose that it is great that it's happening now versus not happening at all. But it's just, it says a lot about our culture that these are things that are happening just so recently. From my research point of view, especially when it comes to genitalia, you have to study both, Okay. Again, because of the mechanical interaction between them, if you look only at the males, you're going to end up with an incomplete picture. If you look only at the females, you'll end up with an incom- incomplete picture. You need to look at them both. And not only both separately, but both together. How they actually fit. How do they function? So it just makes sense to me, you know? And I suppose that in a way I should be grateful because if if things weren't so... Um, uh, you know, primitive in some ways, I wouldn't have a research program now, right? <laughs> it would have already been done by someone else. Um, but I, yeah, I find that, I find that very surprising. Like, you know, we, we don't know anything. That's another project that we have right now is we're looking at um, the clitoris morphology of uh, different groups. And the reason why we're doing this is because, you know, we don't even know about animals that are having sex for pleasure, you know, and we know that some animals do. In many animals, it's only for reproduction, but many animals have sex out of reproductive context. Are they feeling pre- pressure, pleasure, right? And can we actually look at these questions if we look at their structures and try to figure out, wait a minute, so there are a lot of sensory neurons here. There are a lot of parallels in this clitoris to the human clitoris. And so can we say that it's very likely that the function of this structure is similar to the function of this other structure? And then what does that mean for how we perceive and treat animals, right? Because if if we start looking at these parallels and finding these parallels, that's, you know, that's a whole other um, area to, to, to look at. And so, so, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that the time is now for sure, um, because there is a lot that we don't know. In order for us to kind of move forward and continue to ask better questions, we need to fill in those gaps. And and um, uh, it's kind of an exciting it's, it's an exciting thing to be doing, I think. 
And yeah, it's messy, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of noise. It's not quite as easy. The reason why they had excluded females from medical research for so long is because we have hormones. And guess what? When you have hormones that are cycling every month, it messes up medical responses. Exactly. Of course it does. Right. But that's not an excuse to ignore 50% of your population, <laughs> you know? It's like, well, yeah. just deal yeah. with it. Have bigger sample sizes, you know? Just Well, good. Um that was awesome conversation. Um, that feels like maybe a, a, a natural stopping point, unless you have anything else you want to ask, Marty, or anything else you want to add, Patty. Uh, Patty, I, I, I really can't let you go to without um, asking you about spotted hyena pseudopenises. I don't know how that never came up, but, but I don't think you mentioned <laughs> oh pseudopenises at all. I mean, I, maybe you want to just say what they are and why anybody cares, but um, my, my reason for asking is also... <laughs> Is there, are there other mammals or vertebrates that have any equivalent? So, okay, two parts. So to answer your second question first, yes. So other members of the hyena family have similarly exaggerated um, uh, female uh, clitoris, um, but not to the extent of the hyena. And they're much less well studied, okay. of course, and so we don't know a lot about them. And I think there are maybe two or three species uh, where this is uh, the case. Now, what they are, what they are, is they are what we would call masculinized female um, uh, reproductive structures, and they are. It's essentially uh, part of the clitoris because the clitoris is the homologue of the male penis, um, and so they um, are uh, very uh, dramatic, very. Um, uh, large, I guess, very obviously large. And they are very problematic for female hyenas because it turns out that they have to give birth through this penile-like structure, which is long and narrow. And the problem with it is that 35% of first-time mother hyenas die during childbirth. Okay, this is extremely rare in nature. There's a lot of selection for, you know, ease of birth. And in, in most species that we see out in the world, you know, humans, again, another weird exception, uh, you know, having babies is not a reason for you to die. But hyenas are not like that. So a lot of first-time moms um, die during childbirth. So why? You know, the question is, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And so one of the reasons um, uh, for this is that uh, in hyenas, their social system, females are dominant. Uh, and so that this might essentially be um, one of those situations where the females are stuck in in this conflict. In this case, not not necessarily sexual. Well, I guess you, you, it could be uh, th thought of a sexual conflict. But um, the conflict is now that in order for this dominant behavior to uh, really take place, females have very high levels of testosterone, and so testosterone has masculinizing effects in their genitalia as well as other, uh, you know, features of their uh, morphology and behavior. And so that that might be uh, the reason why. So if you wanted less masculinized genital structures, you would have to have less exposure to testosterone, and that would come at a cost of being more dominant later on. So so maybe this is kind of like that, that point at which is this mortality during... Um, Parturition might just be kind of like the, the the price that you have to pay in order to be the boss right. of everybody. I uh, just always found it a fascinating example of an evolutionary trap, and and you know that it fits with the sort of points you were making about the lack of attention to I mean, 
females in general in, in a lot of biomedicine. Um, yeah, I just thought it was something that we should we should touch. Yep, on. yep, it's cool stuff. I mean, you could yeah. no, I, look. I tell you, like you could you could have a whole series of podcasts on like crazy genitalia because <laughs> there is material. Well, that's the plan. You you were the first uh, the yeah, first. We're, guest. we're changing the name of our podcast oh, to genitalia. There you go, genitalia. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Big genitals. Yeah. Big genitals. There you go. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Patty, for talking to us. Uh, fantastic conversation. Yeah, yeah really thank you. It. Yeah, same here. Um, I look forward to the end product, and I can send it to my my uh, friends and family and tell them, here, here, <laughs> see what other crazy yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> I'm up to. <laughs> listening. I hope we convinced you that studying bizarre genitals isn't just some esoteric thing that scientists do. Even though that's how it's cast sometimes by politicians that are setting research budgets. Genital morphology, as well as sexual behavior, can also give us fundamental insight into evolution. We want to know what you think about this show, so contact us through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or even our website where you can learn more about Patty's work and her social media connections too. While you're at the website, consider making a donation. We need your support to keep the wheels turning. And if you're strapped for cash, just tell a friend to listen to the show or give us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get the podcasts. That helps us a lot, too. Stay tuned for our next episode with Joel Brown, a behavioral ecologist at the Moffitt Cancer Center. We'll talk with him about how he applies evolutionary game theory to treat prostate cancer. Thank you to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for their support. And thanks to Jana Wiegand and Matt Blois for writing and production help. Thanks also to Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey, who handle our social media channels, and to Steve Lane, who manages our website. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear, Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, Todd Barrow, and the MIT Concert Choir.